Go ahead and have a seat. If you're sitting down, please turn with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 27. We'll pick up the story of Joseph this morning. I discovered this week that an incredible amount of uh, time and energy and money has gone into the study of human happiness. What's interesting is uh, researchers consistently run into two problems. First is uh, happiness is hard to measure. And second, it's really elusive in our experience. It's hard to measure because obviously it's completely subjective. And so it's measured by self-reporting. People describe their happiness, and if you were to ask a certain person in the morning if they're happy and they reported happiness in the morning, by the evening they might be completely miserable. Okay, which relates to the second problem, it's elusive. Typically, people report that their happiness is tied to, to three things. Okay, relationships that are consistent, stable, secure, and consequently rewarding. Jobs that are consistent and stable, secure, and rewarding financially as well as just job satisfaction, and then a world that is stable and secure politically, economically. The problem with all those things is that they are external to us and they are nearly impossible to control on a consistent basis, right? And so for most people, their happiness is not only elusive, but it's really variable. This morning we're going to continue our study of a man who was not consistently happy by any means. His name's Jacob. It's a man who's born into a home in which he was not the favored son, and he knew he was not the favored son. His father loved his brother more, and, and Jacob had a, a huge hole in his life. And so he's constantly grasping, constantly planning, constantly scheming, trying to fill that hole in his life. And even when he gets what he wants, he's not happy. Last week we saw him scheme to steal the birthright from his brother. He took advantage of Esau's vulnerability. Esau was a man of his appetites. He's tough and strong and manly in a sense, but he was just driven by his passions. He came in from the field and he was hungry and Jacob had the stew ready. And he said, give me a bite of that. Let me, let me gulp it down because I'm starving. I'm about to die. And rather than being a good brother and meeting his brother's physical need, Jacob says, sure, you can have a bowl. But first, let me have the status of firstborn. Let me get the double portion of the inheritance. Let me be the one who has authority over our family. And Esau says, sure, so what? What do I care? What is it worth to me if I'm going to die if I don't get a bowl of your soup? He tricks his brother. His brother gives away the birthright. Then his, later on, his father's about to die, and he, he sneaks in dressed as Esau, clothed in Esau's clothing, smelling like Esau. His father's blind and tests him. He says, is it, is it really you, Esau? It sounds like Jacob. It smells like Esau and feels like Esau. It sounds like Jacob. He says, oh, no, this is Esau. I'm, I'm Esau. He deceives his father. So he gets the birthright and then he gets the blessing from his father. He gets, uh, in a sense, the, the holy grail of Hebrew happiness, right? He's got it. But he doesn't plan on the fact that his brother is going to be so angry that he's going to want to to kill Jacob in order to get it back. So happiness is elusive. That's where we find Jacob. As we begin reading in Genesis chapter 27, verse 41, it says, So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob 
because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother, Jacob. Now when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Haran, to my brother Laban. Stay with him a few days until your brother's fury subsides, until your brother's anger against you subsides and he forgets what you did to him and the fact that he wants to kill you. Then I will sin and get you from there. Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? Chapter 28, verse 10. It says, Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went to Haran. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. Jacob is a man who, who needs, to be, he needs to be changed. He's, he's chosen by God to receive the promises and extend the the blessing of Abraham to all nations, but he is a man who needs to be changed. He needs to be transformed by God. And what we're going to look at in the next two weeks, actually, this week and next, is the process through which God transforms him, the experiences that God brings into his life to move him from being a man who's fearful and and angry and uh, driven by his, his pride to a man who becomes completely and utterly yielded to the will of God first experience that God brings him through is this. Jacob receives a terrifying vision of the glory of God. So remember our setting is this. He's fleeing from the consequences of his own sin. What he's experiencing right now is a result of his own sin. He got himself into this. Read with me again verse 11. It says, he came to a certain place and he spent the night there because the sun had set and he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and he lay down in that place. Jacob's schemes have backfired, and as a result, he finds himself physically alone. And he's physically alone. He doesn't have friends with him. He doesn't have servants with him. It is dark, and we're told he's just in a place, in a certain place. We don't know the name of the place until later. He names it Bethel. It's about 50 miles into a 500-mile journey. But at this point in time, it's a no-name place. Nothing significant has happened there at this point in time. There's not a river there or, or, or a, a, a canyon or a valley or a mountaintop or a ford of a river or anything remarkable about it geographically or historically. It's just a place. It's just any old place. There he is, all alone, utterly and completely all alone in the middle of nowhere. To give you a sense of, of what he uh, might have experienced, this is what Bethel looks like. Okay? And this is in the good season. Okay, this, is, this is when there, there's actually some vegetation growing. Okay, it's, it's normally rocky, dusty, dirty, isolated place. You don't stay here long even if you're a tourist in Israel and you want to see the sights. Physically alone. Personally isolated. He has just left his mother. The one person he knew was on his side, on his team, the one whose favor he had. And he's alone. He's away from Rebecca. He's away from... His father, Isaac, fortunately for now, he's away from his brother, Esau, who wants to kill him. Again, no servants with him, no friends with him. He's by himself. He's materially deprived. Remember, his father hasn't died yet, and so he doesn't have any of the inheritance. He has a rock for a pillow. He doesn't have cattle or oxen or sheep or goats. His father probably gave him a small amount of money, 
and then sent him away. And he's moving away from those promises that he had schemed to get. He's moving out of the promised land, away from his father, away from everything that he had hoped to have. And most importantly, he's spiritually distant from God. And Jacob doesn't know God. Jacob has, has heard about God, but he doesn't know God. He's never had one of those encounters. He's heard about Abraham having an encounter with God and Isaac had an encounter with God, but he's kind of like a, a kid who grows up in a Christian home who heard about his parents' experience with God, but he doesn't know God, right? He doesn't know God personally. In fact, matter of fact, when, when God will come in a few verses, we'll read, God introduces himself to him. He says, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of, God of Isaac. He doesn't say, I'm the God of Jacob because he's not the God of Jacob yet. And Jacob doesn't know who God is. He's spiritually isolated. The author tells us it's dark. It's significant. Jacob is alone in in every respect. Relationally, physically. Has no money, no friends. In a dark, lonely place (laughs) that no one would want to stay. No one would want to camp. Moving away from the promises completely and utterly alone, fleeing from the consequences of his own sin. Okay, that is where God finds Jacob. That's the setting in which God finds Jacob. Read with me verse 12. It says, Jacob had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Jacob had a vision of heaven. Not everybody gets one of these But Jacob got a vision of heaven. And what did he understand through this vision? First, heaven is connected. Jacob thought he was alone, but all of a sudden in his dream, reality is open to him and he realizes he's not alone. In fact, heaven is connected. He'll say later, I had no idea that God was in this place. And if God can be in this place, God can be anywhere. He probably conceived of God as as a local God or a regional God. He didn't know about God's greatness. It blows him away that God could be in this place, that heaven could be connected in this place. And the fact, as a matter of fact, he, he went to bed in the dark, isolated, alone, thinking that no one was around, and he discovers, no, no, there are a lot of people around. Angels are around. God is around. Heaven is actually connected to this place. Reminds me of uh, the scene in Second uh, Kings chapter six. Remember that scene where where uh, Elisha goes to Dothan and uh, he's surrounded by armies that want to kill him. And his servant looks out in the morning. He says, "Elisha, we're dead. We're surrounded." And Elisha prays to the Lord. He says, "Lord, could you just give him just a glimpse of reality? Not everybody gets to see reality. I mean, real reality." Because most people think they're alone and God doesn't care. But I want you to show him reality. Just pull back the veil for just a moment. So God pulls back the veil and, and what does the servant see? He sees there's the earthly army ready to attack him. And then here's this huge host of heaven, which means army. Host means army. There's the army of heaven surrounding this place. And they're in charge. You're not alone. You are not alone. Heaven is connected to earth. Second, he realizes that heaven is concerned with earth. The word angel uh, means, in Hebrew or in Greek, it means messenger. 
So what do we see? We see messengers. Messengers are going back and forth between heaven and earth. They're bringing God's message and they're serving God's people. Serving the lost who they're calling people to God. They're delivering God's truth. They're enacting God's will. They're bringing reports back to God. There's this constant interchange because God is not the God of the deists. God is connected. God is concerned. God is active. God is engaged. That's what he learns when he sees these angels moving back and forth. My translation says that what he sees is the angels of God are moving back and forth on, on a ladder. And when you hear that, what do you think? Uh, same image comes to my mind. Right? I think of a ladder. Right? And then when I think of a ladder, I, I think, how can scores of angels negotiate a ladder? Up and down, you know, are they going opposite sides or do they kind of move this way, move that, and they're going back and forth? That's, that, is not, that is not what he is picturing. It's a terrible translation. I mean, literally, just scratch it out and on the side, in your margin, write, write stairway or ramp. Okay, what he envisions is a, is a stairway to heaven, right? Stairway to heaven. I thought about having Tim play that. I just it just didn't feel worshipful this morning, right? But, but that's what he imagines, okay? Because throughout the ancient Near East, men and women had built stairways to heaven. Remember, we talked about this when we discussed the Tower of Babel. Here's a reconstruction. The Babylonian ziggurat doesn't reach quite to heaven, but what Jacob sees is, is a stairway that is massive and it reaches all the way up into heaven. And, and he can conceive of this. He has, he has a reference point for this because men and women had constantly built these things. These were, these were the towers of their worship that, that they could construct. This represents religion. The steps are constructed by man so that man can ascend to God. This is what man can do to reach up to God. This is what religion is all about. Every religion, every religion. Islam have its, has its five pillars. Buddhism has its eightfold path. Judaism even has 10 commandments and 631 rules and regulations. But the Apostle Paul tells us that within Judaism, the law was designed to drive us to the realization that we can't climb the stairs. The law was designed as a tutor to lead us to Christ. The law was designed to humble us to realize we can't construct a stairway that reaches up to heaven. We need God to come down to us. I want you to hold your place here in Genesis and turn to the book of John. John chapter 1 and verse 43. John 1, verse 43. It says, The next day, Jesus purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? In other words, God is not in that place, is he? God, in fact, is in every place. Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit or no guile. And Nathanael says, oh, of course, yeah. I mean, people, other people know that about me. That's what they always say. I'm, I'm not a tricker. I'm not a schemer. 
He's probably heard that about me before. Nathanael said to him, well, how is it that you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now I was wondering, what was he doing under the fig tree, right? As he says, Nathanael answered him and said, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. What was he doing under the fig tree? That, but Jesus just says, I saw you under the fig tree. He goes, let's, let's change the subject about what I was doing. I acknowledge you must be God. You must be God. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You will see greater things than these. What, what are you going to see? He said to him, Truly I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Wow. What is that an allusion to? Not Jacob's ladder, but the stairway that God constructed from heaven to earth. It says, you will see the angels ascending and descending, not not following me up and down, not following my example just because I'm, I'm a good climber or a good descender. No, you're going to see them walking up and down on me because I am the stairway. I am the stairway. I'm not just a, a good example about how to walk. I'm the only way you can get to heaven because heaven came to earth. The, the perfection of heaven, the ideal of heaven came to earth. I became man. I, I built the stairway. I am the stairway. Step on me. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the door, I am the stairway. I am the only way you can get to God. Because all religion is about what you do to me. You build the stairs, you build the step, you construct the way that you can get back up to me. And you know what? You can't make it. Your stairway doesn't reach high enough. You will become exhausted, you will fail, you will trip, you'll fall down and start over. That is religion. Instead, walk on me. All you have to do is ascend on me. Believe in me. And that's what Jacob has to realize. He sees this stairway coming down from heaven and he realizes man didn't make this, God made this, and I can't climb it. That's the beginning of his understanding of God. Heaven is connected. Heaven is concerned. Heaven comes down to earth. Third, heaven is full of grace. Genesis chapter 28 Let's read in verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob is alone and God says, I will be with you. Jacob is isolated and vulnerable and God says, I will guard you. I will watch over you. Jacob is is impoverished. And God says, I will bless you. Everything that you need, I will give to you. And notice there are no conditions placed upon it. God says, I will, I will, I will. This is who I am. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. And I am now becoming the God of Jacob. I am, I will. I am, I will. That's grace. Where is Jacob? 
Jacob is running away from the consequences of his own sin. Jacob is not praying. Jacob is not fasting. Jacob is not seeking God. God is seeking Jacob. And that's what God does for us. God seeks us. And when does he find us? When we've finally cleaned up enough to be acceptable to him? No. God seeks us and God finds us when we're completely and utterly broken and isolated and in despair. And God chases us down. That is what grace means, people. Right? Don't don't misunderstand it. Don't add to it. Don't confuse it. Grace means that God takes the initiative and chases us down and finds us when we are broken and loves us in spite of everything that's wrong about us. And there's lots wrong about us. And that's why Christ became the stairway. Because we could not ascend. Isn't that beautiful? Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God shows off His own love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The prodigal son who is nasty and unclean and has spent all of his inheritance, the father runs to and embraces. That's the grace of God. You really don't understand the grace of God until you understand how deeply God loves us, especially when we're broken. Heaven is gracious. Heaven is full of grace. Heaven is also terrifying. It's frightening for him to see the glory of God. Read with me again, chapter 28, verse 12. It says, Jacob had a dream, and behold, a stairway was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord. Yahweh, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Notice he says, behold, three times. Verse 12 says, behold, a stairway. Behold, the angels. Behold, the Lord. In other words, wow, a stairway. I never, I never imagined God could be in this place. Oh my gosh, there's angels ascending and descending on it, right? And not, not Hallmark Angels, right? Or, or, or TV angels, real biblical angels, right? I, I, it's amazing to me what you see in, in the media. There's either just evil, horrible angels that we call demons that are just, uh, just gross and frightening, or there are angels who come to people and they say, hey, by the way, I'm an angel, right? You know, you, you probably missed it. That's not biblical angels at all. Biblical angels, people show up. I mean, the angels show up and people say, ah, and the angels say, it's okay, relax. I'm not here to destroy you. Get up. And Jacob sees hundreds and thousands of these frightening beings. And then he says, behold, it's a stairway and there are thousands of angels on it. And oh my, it's God. My translation says God was standing above it. It's, it's, that's, it's not the right translation. It says God was standing above him. God came down, and there he is. God is standing right on top of Jacob. And Jacob's response is complete and utter fear. Read with me chapter 28, verse 16. It says, Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, Surely I did not know that the Lord is in this place. I I didn't know. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. The word for fear is, is a combination of two, two ideas. It's, it's, it's a, a adoration 
and wonder, but, but it's also a terror. He says, this place is awesome, and not like, you know, your iPhone is awesome, but it, it causes him to be filled with awe and wonder, adoration and dread. It's a fearful thing. It's a frightening thing. God is, is beginning to break Jacob. He's beginning, I say, because he, it's, he's not there yet. Okay, Jacob is beginning to uh, fear the right object, fear God. So he's maybe fearing others a bit less. The process has begun. Jacob has been introduced to God. But it's, it's just a process. And we know that as we observe uh, Jacob's worship. Okay, his worship is it's not rich. It's not deep. It's a start, but he's not there yet. Read with me chapter 28, verse 18. So, so Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. However, previously the name of the city nearby had been called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take, and if he will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and if I return to my father's house in safety... If the Lord will actually be my God, then this stone that I have set up as a pillar, it will be God's house, and of all that I give you, I will surely give a tenth to you. Who's in charge of worship? Jacob, right? If God does these things that he said he'll do, then, then he can be my God. If then, if then, if then, right? His worship is conditional. I would argue, too, his worship is really small at this point. He makes this grand bargain with God, but, but if you look closely, what he asks for from God or expects or hopes for from God is actually less than what God has already promised him. God has said, actually, I'm going to bless you so much that you're going to be a blessing to all the nations, and I will do it. So he asks for even less that God has, than God has promised, and so his worship is small. He says, well, I'm going to give a tenth of all that I receive. Now, I don't know what your tradition or your background is from, but I just need to tell you, you know, there's a reason that tithing is not taught in the New Testament, because tithing is just a start. It's just a, it's just a starting point. Give a tenth first, and then you're starting to worship with your wealth, because God owns all of your wealth. It's not yours. It's God's. And so the New Testament tells us, worship, worship sacrificially, give and give and give. Worship joyfully, and it never says the amount that you should give. Just, just worship with a whole heart, because all that you have belongs to God. And so whether it's your money or your time or your talents, just all of that was, is a gift from God. You don't have anything that you earned yourself. And so give, and, you know, and so what we see in Jacob is, you know, he's just starting to worship. But he needs God to continue to break him. And so what he experiences next, or what he sees next, is this. He sees the consequences of his own sin worked out in the lives of others. Jacob's pain that he has experienced personally, and he has begun to cause to others, will begin to be worked out in the context of his own family. Turn to chapter 29, verse 20. Remember, Jacob is on a journey. He continues his journey. He arrives in Haran. He was sent to find a wife, but really what he's trying to find is something that just fills him, right? And he thinks that he's found it. Chapter 29, verse 9. He's in Haran. It says, while Jacob was still speaking with the other shepherds, Rachel came 
with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and he rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and he watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. It's kind of an awkward first date, right? (laughs) Okay. Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son and she ran and told her father. So when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him. And brought him to his house. Then he related to Laban all these things. Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then after a month, Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall be your wages? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than to give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Hey, let me, let me uh, paint this picture for you a little bit. Uh, he shows up at the well, and normally they wait until all of the sheep are gathered, and together all of the men get, get, get on that rock and they move it because it's, it's huge. But Jacob sees Rachel, and he's just... He's overwhelmed. She's, she's, a, she's a stunning young woman. And he goes, hold on, let me get that rock myself. <laughs> See my muscles? Right? He moves the rock, he waters it, he kisses her, he's weeping. He is completely and utterly fa- infatuated by her. And so when Laban says, okay, you've been with me a month, how can I pay you? He says, I'll, I'll, I'll give you seven years of hard labor. Now, to put that in terms of the ancient Near East, that is an exorbitant price to pay for a bride, right? The groom's family normally had to pay for the bride, right? Different culture, I get it. But that's a huge price. Seven years of hard labor. Now, I I will say I would have paid much more for my wife. (laughs) But in ancient Near Eastern terms, right? It's crazy. He doesn't negotiate at all. He's not trying to drive down a price. Because I'll work my fingers to the bone for that one. It's not mature love. It is complete and utter infatuation. And Laban sees an easy mark. You've known guys like this. Right? All rational thinking. It's gone. Maybe you've probably been, some of you have been this guy. Laban sees an easy mark. So the deceiver is deceived. Jacob gets out Jacobed by Laban. He meets his match. Okay? Meets his match in Laban. Verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my time is completed, so that I can sleep with her. Sounds kind of, sounds crass, doesn't it? Well, you miss it in English. It's crass. It's like, hey man, I've been waiting seven years. Give me my wife so I can sleep with her. Laban gathered all the men of the place and he made a feast. Now, in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him, and Jacob went in to Leah, not Rachel. Uh, this is um, irony at its, at its best. Remember, Jacob dressed up as his brother and went into his father's darkness and deceived his father. Now, Leah dresses up as her sister, goes into Jacob's darkness, and deceives him. Oh. Jacob responds 
Ironically, just like Isaac responded, he's furious. Remember, Isaac trembled violently on his bed. Jacob is furious. Verse 25, it says, So it came about in the morning that, behold, here we have another behold. Behold, it's Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? Laban responds, verse 26, Laban said, it is not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one. That is, at least finish your honeymoon week, right? And we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve me for another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week and he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. So he finishes the honeymoon week. As soon as he finishes the honeymoon week, seven days later, he gets married again to his second wife with the agreement that he'll work seven more years. Gotcha. 14 years. Hard labor. So why doesn't Jacob object? He say, no way, man. Give it to me now. I think there's a clue in verse 26. It says, Laban said, it is not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Ooh. So this isn't the way we do it around here, Jacob. We don't exalt the younger over the firstborn. How much did Laban know? No idea. But when Jacob heard those words, it stung. Okay, and he begins to realize, okay, so this is how Esau felt. This is how my father felt. What can he say? Okay. His own sin has become, is coming back to haunt him. Okay. And that pain that he experienced become, begins to become embedded in his own family's experience. Okay. There is pain in his family. Pain for Leah, pain for, pain for Rachel, more pain for Jacob. Read with me chapter 29, again, verse 16. It says, Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Uh, Leah's eyes were weak. That's a really hard thing to translate. Um, it probably had more to do with, with how she looked. Okay? Leah's eyes were weak. Her appearance was not beautiful, but Rachel was beautiful of form and of face. Okay? It's delicately saying she's, I mean, her body is amazing, her face is amazing, and Leah is not. Verse 30. So, so Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban another seven years. He didn't hide the fact. I don't like you. <laughs> but I love her. Now, here's a man who had been the victim of favoritism in his own family. He knew his dad didn't love him. Dad loved his brother. So if anyone would be sympathetic, empathetic to that pain, it should have been Jacob, but he's not. He passes on that pain to Leah. And so what does Leah do? Leah begins to do the only thing she can do. She says, I'll, I'll have babies and he'll love me. And she, she has babies as a, as a tool to turn her husband's heart toward her. It's, it's, Really tragic. Verse 32, chapter 29. Let's start in verse 31. It says, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, and, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Whew. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son. Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore he, named, he was named Levi. She conceived again and bore a son and said, this time 
I guess I'll just praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah, and she stopped having children. But the competition is on. Rachel has enjoyed getting the upper hand her entire life because she is the prettier daughter. But now she needs something else because her sister's having kids, but she can't have kids. Chapter 30, verse 1, Rachel, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister and she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. <laughs> and Jacob's anger burned against Rachel. He said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? She said, here is my maid Billah. Go into her that she may bear on my knees that through her I may have children. Because that's always worked so well in our family's history, right? So here we are, right? <laughs> Wife number three. Good argument against polygamy right here, right? Here we are. Now we're at wife number three. So she gave mermaid Billah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. Billah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore, she named him Dan. Rachel's maid Billah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed, I have prevailed. What is her goal in life? To beat her sister down. People used to always say, oh, there's Rachel. She's beautiful. And they would ignore Leah. But now they're looking at Leah and she's having children. And so Rachel must as well. And so Leah has had child after child after child saying, oh, maybe this will make my husband attached to me. And finally she relents. And says, oh, I guess I'll just praise the Lord. But now Rachel's had a few kids by her maid. So what does Leah do? Verse 9, when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing children, she took her maid, Zilpah. <laughs> Jacob, you're a tool, man. What are you? Okay, we're up to, here we are. Wife number four. Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, lucky me. How fortunate. So she named him Gad. Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, happy am I. Nana. For now women will call me happy because I've had six and you've only had two keeps going. Verse 17, God gave heed to Leah. She conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. Okay, whatever. There's, you know, there's some logic for you, right? So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I've borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. And Rachel finally has a child, names him Joseph. What a home to live in. I wonder about those kids, too. So, okay, who's, who's your mom? Oh, okay, you're, okay you're, the, you're the maid. You're the maid's child. Maid's son. You know, I'm Leah's son. I'm Rachel's son. What's up with our parents? <laughs> it's miserable. We can safely say Jacob is not living the dream, right? And why is that? It's choices he's made. He's beginning to see the pain that he caused to his brother and his father begin to play out because of his scheming personality. Okay? So there's pain in his family. There's pain in his labor. Okay? 14 years he works for Laban. And at the end of 14 years, you know what he has? He has four wives and a whole bunch of kids. He's got a lot of mouths to feed, but he owns nothing. You realize that? He doesn't own anything at this point in time. He has no wealth. It wasn't part of the bargain. So he just says to Laban, Laban, could you just let me go? Just, just I'm leaving. I've done my time. And Laban says, well, I, I really, 
perceive that God has blessed you because, blessed me because you've been here. So give me another six years. And in those six years, we'll work something out where you can take a cut on the wealth as it grows. So they negotiate terms. Jacob works another six years, right? 20 years. And notice what he says here in uh, chapter, chapter 31, verse 38. He says, these 20 years I have been with you, Laban. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times." If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. Jacob's life, he realizes, you know, in these two great arenas, that family and work are are a complete and utter disaster for him. That which he's always been grasping for, that he thought, this will finally bring me joy and satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness, is an absolute mess. God is reducing him to nothing. So that he'll realize he can only find what he wants in God. So how do we apply this? I'm going to give you a couple of applications. The first one may be just a little bit hard to think about. But it's something we need to think about. Has your life harmed others? Whether it was fear or pride or greed or anger? Have you tried to, to control the circumstances of your, of your life? And as a result, has your life harmed others? And Jacob brought pain into others' lives. Have you harmed others? I want you to take a few moments and think about that. It may be time for you to confess that to the Lord. It may be time for you to confess that to another person. Maybe that you need to make restitution so that all accounts can be clear. Second, have you encountered God? Would God say, I'm I'm the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, I'm the God of Jacob, I'm the God of John, I'm the God of Becky. Is he your God? Have you met God? Have you come through the the stairway, Jesus Christ? Have you you stepped on him to ascend to God? He said, God, I believe. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I can't climb, but you came down to me. Thank you. Or maybe you've met him but you need a fresh encounter. Maybe there are the things in your life where you're grasping, you're clinging, you're trying to control because you think you can manage circumstances and you can create health and happiness and wealth and security by your own grasping. And maybe God's saying, no, it's time for you just to let go. Let me be God. Let me be God. I'd like for us to take a few moments quietly as we close. I, I, I have no idea what God is speaking to each of you individually, but I do know this. Every time you come, God wants to speak. So just ask the Lord to seek your heart, search out your heart, and speak whatever it is that he wants to tell you, and then I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, the the story of Jacob is, it's so convicting. When we see that we, we do behave as Jacob did at times, it's also, Father, so incredibly hopeful that you are, are gracious and kind, that you find us uh, even in the midst of, of the consequences of our own sin, when our, we have messed things up, you chase us down, you pursue us, you open heaven to us. 
You remind us that you are concerned deeply with our lives, so much so that you gave us your son. I pray, Father, that this week we would listen to your voice. If there are any relationships in which we need to, to clean things up, that we would do so. I pray, Father, that you would prepare our hearts as we continue to study Jacob next week, that you would just yank out from us those, those false hopes. I pray that as we see fear or pride or anger in our own lives, that we would see that that's a symptom. Maybe we're not seeing how amazingly great you are. We're not seeing your power. We're not seeing your goodness. And so we, we fear our circumstances or we feel like we must control things. And I pray, Father, you give us a fresh, renewed vision of, of your power and your wonder and your goodness. Father, thank you for uh, meeting with us here today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.